Well, turn with me, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10, as we continue going through Nehemiah, it's only about three turns of a page until we're at the end. Uh, like the book of Hebrews, it has 13 chapters, and so we're in the last, uh, the last uh, quarter of the book, and we, uh, we look forward to continued progress. Nehemiah chapter 10, this is the word of the Lord. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hekeliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchiah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ganathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mejamin, Maizah, Bilgil, Bilgai, Shemaniah, these are the priests, and the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, the sons of Hinnadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Pelaiah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chief priests of the people, Perosh, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunai, Asgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Aden, Atter, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodekiah, Hashum, Bezai, Hereph, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpish, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelathia, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hasab, Helosheth, Pela, Shobek, Rahum, Hashabna, Malasia, Haina, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Haram, Bananai. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses to the servant of God. And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the axation of every debt. 
We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, the pre- to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine, the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes of our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, and the Levites shall receive the tithes, And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let us pray. Our most gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we pray that you might help us to understand so many names, so many things so foreign to us as if they're on a different planet. We come before you and before your word seeking light. We ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit. We pray that he who has given this text might now shine on it and shine through it into our lives, applying it and helping us to see and know, to feel and to live to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our sermon begins a little bit differently this week. Um, If you would take out a number two pencil, and if you would take out a blank sheet of paper, we'll have a little pop quiz. I have three questions. Who was the second president of the Continental Congress? Don't answer. Just write it down on your sheet. Who, question two, commissioned George Washington commander-in-chief of the Continental Army? There's one for you. And then question number three. Who was the only person to sign the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776? Well, the answer to all three questions is John Hancock. And it's too bad. I should have, uh, I should have gotten a clip art and we could put it on the screen right now and you could see his big, fat signature right there in the middle of the Declaration of independence. The large size of his signature in which he wrote has immortalized him in popular culture. You see, he was the only one to sign it for several weeks. 
And it makes sense that he wouldn't write his name so small the British couldn't see it. He wanted them to know that that declaration was approved and signed. This evening we come to Nehemiah chapter 10, where the Jewish remnant also lined up to put their signatures on a declaration of independence. It was not, however, the American declaration of independence. This is a different century. But rather... It was a declaration of independence from sin and rebellion. Having come so far to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild her walls, the remnant of God began to realize how far they had strayed from the word and will of God. And what are we to do when we wake up one morning and we have that flash of insight that lets us know that we are not what we should be, that we have wandered away very far from our God. This text shows us that renewing our covenant vows to the Lord is a good first step. You see, that's what Nehemiah and his followers did. They reaffirmed their devotion to God. And they did it in writing. And that's not because God's forgetful and He needs to go back to the text and keep reading it so that He'll remember... They wrote it down for us and for themselves. They wrote it down so that they could read it and read it over and over again. And so could we. They did that so that they would never forget. And there would be a record and a witness to their own souls and to their children and to their children's children. Because you see, covenant renewal is just good for the soul. It's good for the soul. Now look at who signed the covenant renewal document. Uh, We can begin at verse 1. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, and etc. And then it says, these... uh, they They are then listed all the way down to Shehemiah. Here we have a list of civil authorities, the governor and others who signed the group or signed the, the declaration of spiritual independence. They were a group and are listed together so that we might understand the importance of civil authority recognizing the need for our humility before God. Now, the Reformed have always recognized this truth. And this may grate against some uh, Jeffersonian ideal of the separation of church and state. That idea has been taken in a very radical and interesting direction that I, I have a sneaking suspicion John Hancock wouldn't recognize. I know at least John Witherspoon and some others who signed certainly would not understand it today. But the Reformed have always recognized a proper role because the civil magistrate must understand and respond to what happens in and around the civil realm and inevitably he will decide what is right and what is wrong and what to restrain and what to promote. And if he has an eye towards God or nature's God or the light of nature or the principles moral 
that are written on the heart of man made in the image of God, then he will restrain sin and he will promote righteousness in the land. Now this does not mean lining people up and shooting them. Uh, You might be afraid of that, and indeed you would be right to be afraid. Just delve back into the history of the continent of Europe and you will see seasons in which there were great and mighty persecutions and bloodshed that makes us shake our heads. Thankfully, our, our Reformed forefathers in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition recognized by the 19th century, the need to declare specifically that they were opposed to persecuting principles. Even though the original Confession of Faith, Westminster, was written open-structured to that possibility, they said, no, that is not the biblical faith, and we will not be involved in the shedding of blood over doctrinal issues per se. They rejected persecuting principles, and I urge you to reject them too. But this does not mean that the civil magistrate has no relationship to morality or to morality shaped by God and the work and influence of God. It does mean that they must craft public legislation and policy to encourage the good and to restrain the evil. It does mean at the root that having civil authority rightly constructed means having someone who is a father to us, acting as a father towards its citizenry, and so ruling in their best interest and for their good. And if we read the larger catechism in the Bible, which it expounds on the one hand in the fifth commandment, and we look very carefully at the world around us today, we will recognize in light of the Sermon on the Mount that that does not give us a nanny state where Daddy tells us everything we can and cannot do uh, from the White House. But it does justify the need for a state with a moral conscience that is rightly oriented towards true north rather than being off by some arc in a deviant direction. Make no mistake about it. Every civil ruler must inescapably make decisions like this. And we call them, on the basis of God's Word, to line up according to the moral law of God and to seek to rule and care and shape and encourage according to righteousness rather than according to evil. One day, every president, every king, every congressman will stand before God the Almighty at His throne and they will give an account for the deeds done in the flesh for better or for worse. Yes, they must exercise discretion in judgment and working with fallen and sinful creatures is a very difficult thing. But their compass, if it is not oriented toward the moral law of God, will be found wanting. And so this means that we as Christians need to be active in the civil realm. We need to be influencing matters in our democracy. It is our Christian duty to bring to bear according to our station and our gifts and opportunities. We must vote. We must respond to polls. We must choose a candidate who has as close or clever an orientation towards 
that good and righteous goal of, mor of morality and the moral law as we can find. Corporate, public, private, all of these realms will answer to God for the way that they have behaved. But here, in the opening words of the declaration of dependence on God in covenant renewal, the first set of signers were the civil authorities and leaders of the day. Then there's a second set. It goes down from verse 2 all the way down to verse 8. And here are major families that helped build and rebuild Jerusalem. They're listed by family head, and, and even Ezra's family is particularly mentioned. Uh, we can go back to Ezra chapter 2 and compare one list with another, and we see some of these names that have been given earlier. They came with the remnant from the exile back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. And so covenant renewal is not nearly a private matter. It is also a corporate and a public and familial matter as well. You might be surprised how much influence you have. You might think, well, I'm not in, a, in an influential family. But you know, let me remind you that there are little eyes that watch and they hear. You have as a parent an enormous amount of influence over your children, more than you would ever on your most discouraged of days believe. They, they look like you. They walk like you. They talk like you. They share some of the same patterns of strengths and weaknesses that are in your own family and your own marriage. No, you're not responsible for their sins per se. They are responsible for them. But you are bound to them by a cord and by a relationship that is too precious for words to rightly describe. And so you are called, even by the list of major families here, to desire God, to desire fellowship with Him, to put Him first and foremost in the concern of your family and your thinking and your life, that you might have influence over your own children and your own grandchildren on the wider community even through them, down the generations. You must also sign your name to the covenant renewal commitment of fellowship unbroken with your God. In verses 9 to 13, we have a whole list of Levites that are mentioned. Uh, they signed... And the names of some of the persons here listed are people who are earlier recorded as having preached or helped in the preaching. And that's a lesson to us that it's not just isolated individuals, it's not just leaders in the civic realm or, or in the society, but it's also even elders and ministers, preachers and teachers in the church who have a profound role in leading and what a value there is to humble, God-fearing, Lord-loving leadership. It's so important in the life and the well-being of the church. As we march forward as a congregation, we do well to pray for our officers. We do well to appreciate them when they seek to, to line up the life and experience of the church according to the Word of God. You know... As you look around our community, there are some churches that desire to follow the Word of God written as an errant and true. 
And there are others that have very little or only casual interest in such things. Their hearts being drawn by a strange affection in some other direction, whether it be political or whether it be national or, or whether it be some other ideal. And the leaders or chiefs of the people are also to have said to have signed. Uh, they are a list in verses 14 to 27 uh, that are also given here in the text. The chiefs of the people, it says in verse 14. And so it is true. Leadership in the community is something that is real. It is not just wealthy families. It is not just elected or appointed officials who are in charge. It's, it's not just even those that are ministers of the cloth, but it's also a more general kind of leadership in the community that signed. They too must be concerned with the things of God if godliness is to flourish. And so prominent families and men should always be asking, how can they promote the kingdom of God? Oh, there, there are opportunities for kingdom flourishing on every hand, The question is, how will you live your life and what will be your priority? I urge you, in the name of Christ, not to waste your life chasing pleasure and comfort and ease, but rather hear the words of Jesus and seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these other things will be added to you and His good time and providence. Well, that's a tour of the major groups of John Hancock's that signed in Nehemiah chapter 10. And they are a witness and an encouragement to us to recognize that in the providence of God, we have a certain set of gifts and calling and station, and we should strain every nerve and use every opportunity to promote the love of the Lord the faithful service of the Lord, and the goodness of His kingdom. But it's also good to look at the oath that they signed. They took an oath in a general sense, and it's instructive for us. In verse 28 we read of the variety of people that were wrapped up in the implications of this covenant renewal. Young and old, parents and children, Male and female are listed. We have a reference in verse 28 to the rest of the people. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, to their wives, to their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers and their nobles and enter into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law. Oh, they... Each and every one, all of them there together, banded together and wrote their name at the bottom of a document that would be opposed and hated by all the surrounding peoples. They were blessed in a sense to have such enmity surrounding them. It was a part of what God has promised all the way back in the first giving of the gospel. Back in Genesis chapter 3, did God not promise not only one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, though he would be bruised on the heel, but did God also not promise that there would be a divine ordained enmity that would separate the blessed line and the people of God from all the rest of the world? And so young and old, rich and poor, 
parents and children, male and female, everyone in the society found themselves in that boat together and they found themselves together turning to God as their only hope. And they specifically promised in verse 28 to separate themselves from the people of the land. All who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. They were not going to be caught up in the surrounding Samaritan and Canaanite pagan religious practices and immoralities. They were going to turn their back on the world. They were not going to intermingle and intermarry. They were not going to cohabit with them, but rather they were going to seek to follow the Lord. We know what this is like in our families today, do we not? On every side, we are surrounded by people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Our children go and and play over at friends' houses and they come back with reports of all manner of religious practices. You can't name a religion that the children in this church have not seen in someone's home or, or in some basketball or baseball or other group that they're involved in. They're exposed to such a plethora of different ideas and even in the pagan aspects of some of these temptations that might even shake us to our souls. We do well to hear the words of our brothers and sisters before us that they recognized that they had a unique calling in redemptive history. They had a unique role to play and that they were the ones through whom the Messiah would come and salvation would come to all the earth. And so they were at a time and a place where they were not to be intermingled, but rather were to be singularly focused on serving the Lord. And now in this gospel age, as that veil has been rent from the top of the Holy of Holies to the bottom, as the division between Jew and Gentile has been broken down, and the way to God has been opened through fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord, our whole perspective and the way we relate and interact with others of different backgrounds and nationalities, all of that is transformed by the gospel and so we seek gospel good. At the core, the same moral concern that they are raising here, the great failure that they had fallen into in the the first years in which they had been back in the land is one that applies to us as well. We need to teach our children that you're a covenant child, that you are not your own, that you are the Lord's, that you have no right to go chasing after the daughters of men or the sons of men. You must look to the Lord and you must always seek to love Him and serve Him even in your family life and even in the spouse that you seek out. The Lord calls us not to be unequally yoked, but to seek to establish Christian homes where children, covenant children, can be raised in godliness and they can be nurtured in the truth and admonition of the Lord. Oh, to all of our covenant children, we remind them that they must guard their hearts and set their affections only where it falls along the lines of the godly call of the gospel. And there's language that might perhaps startle us at first here. 
they, on the one hand, are joining together with their brothers and the nobles, but they do this joining together in the document to enter into a curse. It's a covenant renewal. And the bond that they have together is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. They are signing in blood, as it were, their pledge not to violate, to renew their covenant vows to God and to seek to strand up and go straight and fly right by His grace and by His strength. The bond promise of the blessing of God was also one that involved the threat of cursing as well. They entered into a curse and entered into an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and statutes. And so they promised together to walk according to God's law, to observe all that He commanded, to renew their vows before God, at that time and place and station in which they lived in the unfolding of redemptive history. Now the good news of the gospel for you is that uh, right after the service is over, we're going to have a sandwich supper and you're not bound to only eat kosher. There are no dietary restrictions. There will be meat and there will be milk together on the same plate. Your sandwich can even have ham in it. And we know what Emerald says about ham, pork fat, It rules and kicks it up a notch. The good things of the earth have been given to us by the inspiration of God. A vision has come and the apostles have seen that the great great tent has come down and all manner of animals are there. And we in Texas know how to rejoice in that and barbecue almost anything that we can get our hands on. And so we're not bound by the narrow terms and distinctives of the covenant mosaic but we are bound by the moral law of God and we are bound by the good of the gospel and we seek in every opportunity to give him glory by living in a Christ-like way and there were these peculiar and particular pledges they made in verse 30 we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons And so our children still need that basic moral principle ringing in their ears. They need to grow up knowing that the French romantic ideal is a nice thing of paintings and of literature, but it is not the substance of the gospel. Love, my friends, is a decision. Love is a decision. And if you're chasing only after silly emotions, you will fall. And then in verse 31 we are told we are reminded to keep the Sabbath. And if the peoples of the land bring goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. They bound themselves to keep this peculiarity of the, of the Mosaic law and commandment Because you see, it is also also very open structure to the Ten Commandments as well. They were going to keep the Fourth Commandment, to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. They were going to, to arrange their work and arrange their rest so that their rest honored God rather than just themselves. Are you burned out? Are you tired and haggard? 
then look at your calendar, look at your week, and make sure that you set time aside as God commands for true Sabbath rest. And then finally, there is an emphasis here on tithes and offerings. We won't read all of it, but verses 32 down to 39, there's this amazing particularity. There's a temple tax, and, and half of it was regu- irregularly given at census time, and they shifted to a third annually, perhaps in the rhythm of the Persian tax collection. Offerings in kind, we hear about the bringing of wood for the burnt offering. We hear about first fruits. We hear about firstborn. Don't worry, that doesn't mean that your first child gets sacrificed on the altar. You get to uh, make a payment so that they can live. Uh, The grain offerings, the new wine, the oil offerings, all of this brought into the temple of God. Their tithes, their tithes of tithes that go down to the temple uh, in Jerusalem. And the whole summary is given to us in verse 39. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now it is true there are some parallels that can be drawn between the physical buildings in the life of Old Testament Israel and and physical buildings that the church has today. We are still human beings. We take up space. We don't need rain falling on us as we worship. There are basic things that we have in common with them on these matters, but we have no temple. We don't have a tabernacle tent that we set up out on the front lawn except for vacation Bible school, and that's just educational. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this Old Testament shadow. And so the basic principle is true. We will not neglect the one to whom the house of the Lord pointed. We will not neglect the Lord our God. All of our life will be shaped and informed and motivated. Even if it costs us, we will will push and, and shape all of it around our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is our first concern. He is our first priority. And that matters more than all the pleasures and ease of the world. Covenant renewal is good for the soul. We do well to wake up and see our need to renew our vows to Him. Do you need to renew your covenant vows before the Lord? Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that you would aid us in loving and serving you from the heart. May our eyes be upon Jesus. May he be our only true source of independence and hope. And we will give you all the glory. Help us to walk with him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.